on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Brandy Carlisle. She won three Grammys in 2019, including Best Americana Album. She has a new memoir. Carlisle grew up poor. Her father was addicted to alcohol. She was a churchgoer, but when she prepared to be baptized, she was told she couldn't be because she was gay. Now she and her wife have two children, and they live on a compound in the state of Washington with their extended family. Also, we talk with Reem Cassis, author of the cookbook The Palestinian Table, and a new follow-up called The Arabesque Table. She's Palestinian, grew up in East Jerusalem, and moved to the U.S. when she was 17. Later, Maureen Corrigan reviews a new novel by Caitlin Greenwich, inspired by the life of the third African-American woman to earn a medical degree in the U.S. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. Teladoc offers access to licensed therapists by phone or video to help those dealing with stress, anxiety, personal, or family issues. Teladoc is committed to quality, confidential therapy from the comfort of your home, available seven days a week, matching members to therapists, counselors, and psychiatrists. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers, and individual plans are also available. Download the app or visit teladoc.com slash fresh air to get started today. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, Grammy Award-winning songwriter, singer, and guitarist Brandi Carlisle, has written a new memoir that gets off to a dramatic start with her near death from meningococcal meningitis at the age of four. She had a lot of tough times growing up, periods of poverty, moving around a lot with her family. Her father drank too much. She was bullied and was a bully in school. She felt like a misfit, but things got better. She realized she was gay, she found women she loved, and she fulfilled her childhood dream of becoming a successful singer-songwriter. She met the Henseroth twins, Tim and Phil, and they formed a band together that has stuck together. In 2019, their album, By the Way I Forgive You, won Best Americana Album of the Year, and the song, The Joke, won for Best American Roots Song and American Roots Performance at the Grammys. Carlisle is also part of the group The High Women, along with Amanda Shires, Marin Morris, and Natalie Hemby. That group won three Americana Music Awards in 2020 and a Grammy for Best Country Song in 2021. Carlisle and her wife Catherine have two daughters and live on a compound in the state of Washington with the Hanseroth twins and their children. Phil Hanseroth is married to Carlisle's younger sister Tiffany. Carlisle's cellist is married to Catherine's sister. Brandy Carlisle's new memoir is called Broken Horses. Let's start with the song The Joke, the song that won two Grammys in 2019. You're feeling nervous, aren't you, boy? With your quiet voice and impeccable style. Don't ever let them steal your joke. And your gentle ways To keep them from running wild They can kick dirt in your face Dress you down and tell you That your place is in the middle When they hate the way you shine I see you tugging on your shirt Trying to hide inside of it And hide how much it hurts Let them laugh a while 
Brandy Carlisle, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you. That song is kind of about, you know, being a misfit, being excluded because of who you are, being seen as less than. Um, so I think your book starts with a reason you might have felt like a misfit right from the start of your life. And that's what I referred to before, getting meningitis when you were four and um, you know, nearly dying, being in a coma and flatlining several times while you were in the coma. Doctors weren't sure you'd pull through. When you think about that moment, <laughs> that, that period, and I, I know your memories of it, I'm sure you don't really remember being in a coma, but when you think about when you learned that you were in that world between life and death, what do you think about? I think I have really detailed abstract memories of that time. And um, I remember really specific things, kid things that you, that, you know, that you'd think a kid would remember, like, you know, what kind of toys I was given and, you know, what kind of food I ate and certain interactions with certain adults. But a lot of it is just based on what I've been told um, throughout my life and then a way that I felt when I came out of that, which is that I felt a little bit too in tune with how adults feel and and how adults walk through the world as opposed to how a child thinks adults walk through the world. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that the the, the fallibility that gets exposed when you realize that your parents don't have any control over whether or not you live or die is not su something you're supposed to really realize, I think, until you get a lot older. So from the get, I, I had that realization because I you know I saw my parents react understandably to me being a sick kid. I saw parents that thought they were going to lose their child and that those parents, they cry and they and they react. And it's scary because you, you sort of need to see, I think, your parents as these kind of pillars and, and protectors. And, and that was a glimpse that I got into the fact that that might not be so. And uh, it had a lasting impact. Did you grow up afraid of death and that it could take you at any moment? Yeah, kind of. But I did believe that there were mystical reasons why it didn't. It was kind of part of my narrative. Yeah, your family thought that you survived because God had a plan for you. How seriously did you take that? That's a kind of a lot of pressure in a way, isn't it? It is a lot of pressure. You're right. Um, I don't know. You know, I think I took it real seriously. And I think that it was something that I told myself really often. And I believed it. And that gave me a sense of of like specialness and I think it's nice when you're poor when you don't have a lot and you struggle you know um, for a lot of reasons with being different but you have a sense of specialness you feel that you have a, a sense of specialness I think it really helped me move in the direction that I moved in as an artist and as a person did it give you a sense of faith in God that you maybe wouldn't have had otherwise it did it gave me a sense of um the faith in God that's un unshakable by, uh, you know, the whims of culture, by politics, by people. Or by organized religion. <laughs> or by organized religion. <laughs> by church specifically. Yeah, exactly. So you knew when you were a child that you wanted to sing. And when you went with your mother 
to, you know, the regional Opry where she was auditioning, you saw a nine-year-old sing and you thought, if she can do it when she's nine, I could do it when I'm nine. I don't have to wait till I'm an adult. And you started singing and auditioning when you were a child as a result of that. Um, did you start to feel at that point like maybe that was the special thing that God had singled you out for? Um, I don't think I drew that conclusion right away, but the epiphany of realizing that, that that was something I didn't have to wait to start is like, you know, what do you get asked as a kid all the time by adults? Like, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? And it never occurred to me that music wasn't something I had to wait to grow up to do until I saw Amber Lee strut her stuff out on that stage, stage and sing Dolly. I realized that, yeah, I can, I can get this going right now. And, um, and I did, and that was mystical in its own sense without me having to draw the correlation to my childhood illness. It took a long time for me to be able to do that, probably up until my 30s. You wanted songs that belonged to you even when you were a child, and you didn't know how to find a songwriter. So you thought, well, maybe I'll write some songs myself. Do you remember the first song that you wrote? Yes, I do remember the first song that I wrote. I had just gotten the opportunity to open for the country singer Shelley West, and at the end of it, I remember just being manic, like high as a kite, because I had just played this tremendous show and the audience reacted really explosively and I was so excited about it. And I remember telling my mom that uh, the difference between me and Shelley West was like almost nothing and that it was gonna take almost nothing for me to just be a gigantic country star, <laughs> like 10 or something. <laughs> and she like leaned down to me and said something about how she just met a composer and he had two originals that he wanted her to sing. And um, I was never competitive with my mother or anything, but I, I remember that that was the worst news because it occurred to me there was a thing called an original. And that if you don't have an original, you're just acting, you're just singing other people's songs. And I was obsessed at that point with having a song that was written for me. And uh, when I realized that I was 10 and wasn't going to have access to that, uh, <laughs> I wrote one. <laughs> it's called, and it was called Ride On Out. It was about, you know, riding on out into the sunset. Can you sing a few bars of it? Yeah, it was like, I'm going to ride on out. I'm going to hit the road. I'm going to take to the trails with a speedy mode. Leave you behind in a dusty cloud. Sing nature's song both quiet and loud. And when the sun sinks behind the mountains high, I'll sing my sad songs beneath the purple sky and fall asleep inside my saddle deep. I wake on up to the morning sweet. I'm going to ride on out. I'm going to hit the road. And that was it. <laughs> what were you thinking about? What 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 was the story in your mind that accompanied the lyric? I was thinking about cowboys or cowgirls riding through the desert on horseback and falling asleep next to a campfire in their saddles and you know picking on acoustic guitars and and uh, spending the days with the tumbleweeds and the night with the stars and the coyotes and I just had this imagery in my mind of leaving and just taking my music and going. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for thank you for singing that for for us. Your friend Amber, who loved to sing, started singing with you, and her father was an Elvis impersonator. So you and she became his backup singers and had to learn the parts of the Jordanaires, who sang backup for Elvis Presley. What did you get out of studying Elvis recordings and the Jordanaires harmonies? 
Well, I mean, that is not a bad education. It was like, it was a lesson in pitch. It was a lesson in delivery. It was a lesson in blend, but also counter melodies. The fact that the harmonies didn't happen at the same time the lead vocals happened, the fact that they were in rhythm that you could hear snaps and movement and feet stomping. They were just musical bodies. They were the greatest probably that's ever been. So um, I came out of the gate with really high expectations for background vocals in particular. And to be honest, I also learned a hell of a lot by watching people react to Elvis's moves, even if it was on a impersonator. It was pretty interesting education to be on the backside of the stage looking at audience faces, which is where I've actually learned a lot in my life. What did you learn from watching the audience? I learned the things that they react to, how a smile is contagious. Uh, I learned about comedic timing. I learned about sort of like physical communication, especially because Elvis was such a physical communicator with the audience. And I remembered thinking, standing back there in my poodle skirt going, you know, actually, I want to be that dude. (laughs) (laughs) Was was that the, the black leather dude or the white suit dude? Both. You name it. You name it. <laughs> Let me reintroduce you here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Brandy Carlisle. She's a Grammy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and guitarist. Her new memoir is called Broken Horses. We'll talk more after a short break, and Maureen Corrigan will review a new novel inspired by the life of the third African-American woman to earn a medical degree in this country. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message for NPR's Fresh Air is sponsored by Sattva Mattresses. Sattva provides a fresh take on how mattresses are sold online, starting by never smashing them into a box. That's because the Sattva Classic has two layers of coils, one for support and the other for comfort. Those two layers could never be stuffed into a box like other online mattresses that are mostly foam. To learn more, check out all the benefits of the Sattva Classic by visiting Sattva at sattva.com slash NPR. So you write in your memoir, this is referring to your period when you were in school, and you dropped out when you were a sophomore in high school. You wrote, my need to be perceived as confident and strong was starting to consume me. This period is, to say the least, a fragile time in any child's life. Gender dysphoria, as I understand it now, is a natural concept during adolescence, but I had no language for it. Would you describe what you were experiencing? It's abstract, but I think I was experiencing, um, you know, the beginnings of puberty and not really understanding how to be in my body. I think that's a pretty common adolescent experience just in, just in general, but I didn't know any gay people and I lived in a really small town. And I didn't know how to call what I was feeling. And so I think that I developed kind of a, a a style of interacting with people that was in, in character, like a persona. And um, I remember just trying to feel and appear really strong and confident and charismatic when that's obviously the opposite of how I felt inside. I don't know if this song exactly fits here, but I want to play it. Um, and the song is called That Wasn't Me. And you describe it in your memoir as... Um, as the song that's your deepest healing song. I'd like, to, before we hear it, I'd like to know what you mean by that. Well, I think that I wrote that song about 
my father's um, addiction and recovery. And... This is addiction to alcohol. Addiction to alcohol and recovery. And, you know, I grew up in Al-Anon, Alateen, and, um, you know, I was sort of steeped in AA philosophy and, and um, that kind of language and that sort of understanding. And when my dad finally did get sober as, as I was an adult, I wrote that song kind of like from his perspective or maybe what I felt like in some ways I needed him to say or what I knew that he would say if he could. So that's what that song's about for me. So I, I like this a lot, so let, let, let's hear it. This is Brandy Carlisle, That Wasn't Me, from her 2012 album, Bear Creek. Hang on, just hang on for a minute. I've got something to say. I'm not asking you to move on or forget it, but these are better days. To be wrong all along and admit it is not amazing grace But to be loved like a song you remember even when you've changed Tell me Did I go on a tangent? Did I love through my teeth? Did I Did I bring shame on my family? Did it sound I was weak? Whatever you see, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. Oh, that wasn't me. So that was my guest, Brandy Carlisle. Her song, That Wasn't Me. You left high school when you were a sophomore, and your younger brother, who's just about a year younger than you, left at the same time. Did that have anything to do with not getting baptized? I'm not sure of the chronology. No, uh-uh. I think that it, had, it was that there were a lot of reasons for it at that time, and it wasn't clear to me then, but when I look back on it now, you know, I see why it happened. Which is? Well, I just felt that what I was going to do, I didn't have to wait to start. And uh, that's not to say that I don't have any regrets or that it wasn't a really, um, that it didn't lay a burden on my shoulders because it did and it has for years. And actually this, writing this book has done more for me, um, reconciling my lack of an education than anything ever has. Um, but at the time, you know, we were moving a lot. Um, our dad was the sickest he'd ever been in, in his alcoholism. We were both failing every class. Uh, I was in special education classes. Um, Jay's anxiety was out of control. And I was out of, out of the closet at school. And that was a big deal. That's a really big deal to be like 14 and, and out of the closet in a small town. I was the only gay person. And... Um, and just as I started 10th grade, we had one of our moves had led us into an address change that would have put me in a whole new school district for the first time, you know, in a long time. And I was like, I can't do this again. I cannot come out of the closet in a new place. 
and I'm so behind. I just want to be in my band and I just can't show up here anymore. And so we we dropped out of school on the same day at the same time and continued our parents' legacy of dropping out of school. And uh, it was not a beautiful <laughs> moment in our adolescence. Did that open the door to doing more music? It did after a minute. I think for a minute we were in grief about it without really knowing that that's what it was. I remember my brother and I went to a yard sale and picked up a big old box of unlabeled VCR tapes. And um, we, we just laid in bed for months and watched mystery movies and didn't talk. We didn't talk about it. We didn't talk to our parents. We were just total losers. And um, when we came out of it, we came out of the gate really uh, recommitted to and solidified in our music and in our band. But we did have a grief period where we realized that we were, um, we were those kids that had dropped out of school really young. So I want to play another song, but this time it's not your band. It's a band that you're in with several other women, with Amanda Shires, uh, Maren Morris, Natalie Hemby, and it's called The High Women. It's a play on, on the highwaymen. You've won music awards with this group. So the song I want to play is If She Ever Leaves Me. And it's, it's a great song, and uh, you sound great on it. But it's a, it's a song from the point of view of a lesbian who's singing to this guy, if she ever leaves me, it won't be for you. <laughs> so um, talk a little bit about this song before we hear it. And, and, wh- and what, it means, what it means in country music, because this got a, a country music songwriting award. Um, so what does it mean in country music to have a song from a lesbian point of view? I think it's so important to have a country music song from a lesbian point of view, actually just from a queer point of view in general, because queer people love country music. And we're kind of in the closet about that, I think, sometimes as a community. But we love country music. We just don't think that it's going to open its doors to us. And and when it does, it's it's wildly uh, satisfying. And so the fact that If She Ever Leaves Me has been so well received in, in the genre has been um, kind of a kind of a, an exciting ride for me. And yeah, it's about a woman, in this case me, who is, you know, in a situation where she's watching some, just some ignorant cowboy pick up on her girl. And she's basically telling the guy, she's like, listen, pal, I hate to break it to you, but she might leave me. This might not work out, but if she ever does, it certainly ain't going to be for you, buddy. <laughs> that's what it's that's what it's basically saying. I get such a kick out of singing that song. That's a great song. So, this is Brandy Carlisle with the group The High Women. I see you watch her across the room Dancing a room in your mind It takes more than whiskey to make that flower bloom By the third drink you'll find out she's mine I've loved her in secret I've loved her out The sky has it all Or it might not work out If she ever 
that was Brandy Carlisle singing lead with the group The High Women, and the song is If She Ever Leaves Me. Um, thank you. That's a, such a, <laughs> a great performance. Brandy Carlisle, it has been just such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. And I really enjoyed your new book as well, as well of course, as your music. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. You're just amazing. Oh, thanks. Brandy Carlisle's new memoir is called Broken Horses. A research study involving a chimpanzee raised in a black family was the subject of the 2016 novel We Love You, Charlie Freeman by Caitlin Greenidge. Her second novel, Liberty, which was just published, is a foray into historical fiction. Greenidge is a contributing writer for the New York Times. Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, has this review of Liberty. Liberty, a new novel by Caitlin Greenidge, is inspired by the life of Susan Smith McKinney Stewart, the third African-American woman to earn a medical degree in this country. After the Civil War, Dr. McKinney Stewart opened her own practice in Brooklyn and co-founded the Brooklyn Women's Homeopathic Hospital and Dispensary. Dr. McKinney Stewart was an exceptional woman, a pioneer. But of course it can be hard living in the shadow of such a pathbreaker, especially when you yourself are drawn to the simpler pleasures of the conventional. That's the predicament of the narrator of this novel, who's given the magnificent name of Liberty by her mother, a black female doctor modeled on Dr. McKinney Stewart. Ironically, the liberty our narrator most fiercely desires is freedom from her remarkable mother's grand expectations. As a novelist, Greenidge, like her main character, is also attracted to the simpler pleasures of the conventional. In Liberty, she's written an old-fashioned historical novel. For instance, one of the most transfixing scenes here draws from the actual New York City draft riots, which ignited in July of 1863 when white working-class New Yorkers became infuriated by new federal draft laws. White gangs assaulted black people and torched the colored orphan asylum, which once stood at 44th Street and 5th Avenue. In Greenidge's novel, Liberty hears of these terrors and travels with her doctor mother to the Brooklyn waterfront at dawn to meet traumatized black New Yorkers fleeing Manhattan for their lives. Gazing across the water, Liberty says, I had never seen smoke mixed with fog like that before, how it hovered like a curtain between this world and maybe the next. I heard the tiniest drip of a wave, the sound a fish makes when it turns over on the surface of the water and falls back to its home. I saw finally something nosing its way through the clouds. It was a long boat with four rowers, followed by two more. Between the rowers on the boats were tens of children. What was most eerie about it all was that the only sound was the water slapping the oars. Even the babies were silent. 
Although she's been designated since birth to be her mother's partner and successor in the medical practice, Liberty prefers music to science, and Greenidge endows her voice with a musicality that perhaps you can hear in that passage. When she's of age, Liberty is sent off by her mother to a black college in Ohio, founded by abolitionists. There, she's the only woman taking the men's courses of study in biology and chemistry. And because she's a dark-skinned black woman, her isolation is intensified by the colorism that prevails among the student body. Like the real Dr. McKinney Stewart's daughter, whose name was Anna, Liberty eventually marries a man from Haiti and moves there with him. In the concluding, and to my mind less successful, Haitian section of this novel, historical realism gives way to gothic excess, a weird mansion where all sounds are magnified, a rotten patriarch, and even a confined madwoman overrun the storyline. Liberty, the novel, is most compelling when it hews closer to the known facts of the past and to the tensions which Greenidge so acutely imagines between a mother of vast accomplishment and a daughter who simply doesn't share that mother's ambition. There's a small scene tucked into the middle of this novel where Liberty dares to berate her mother for accommodating white female patients. How can you treat those white women, I said, after what you've seen them and their husbands do to the people who came to us? I've raised you wrong, Mama said. I've raised you all wrong if some white folks being cruel is a surprise to you. I am not surprised by the cruelty, Mama, I said. I am surprised we are expected to ignore it, to never mention it, to swim in it as if it's the oily, smelly harbor water the boys dive into by the wharves. That passage and so many others like it generate attention in the narrative of this fine novel and in us readers too between the residual currents of cruelties and compromises and the emergent one of a more humane future that only yet more struggle might hope to bring about. Maureen Corrigan teaches literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Liberty by Caitlin Greenwich. Coming up, we'll hear from Reem Cassis, author of the cookbook The Palestinian Table and a new follow-up called The Arabesque Table. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision. Kind of like Taylor Swift choosing a cardigan on a chilly day. And with their top-rated app, you can deposit checks and transfer money anytime, anywhere, making Capital One an even easier decision. That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. The news is about more than what just happened. You need to know why it happened, who made it happen, how it's felt in the communities you care about. NPR's daily news podcast, Consider This, gives you all of that with context, backstory, and analysis on a single topic every weekday. It's not just information, it's what the news means. Consider This from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor WISE, a new way to send, spend, and receive money internationally. 
With WISE, you can save more and worry less. You always get the real mid-market exchange rate when you send money to 80 countries, and 50% of transfers arrive within one hour. Your WISE account also lets you hold up to 55 currencies and convert them instantly. Join over 10 million customers and try WISE for free at wise.com NPR. A lot of dishes that many of us think of as Middle Eastern or Israeli originated as Palestinian dishes. My guest, Rim Cassis, wrote about the history of Palestinian food, along with some of her personal history, in her first book, The Palestinian Table. In her new book, The Arabesque Table, she expands the focus to the cross-cultural culinary history of the Arab world. Both books are beautifully illustrated cookbooks, with each recipe accompanied by historical background and, when relevant, personal stories. Cassis is Palestinian and was raised in East Jerusalem, which is predominantly Palestinian. Her mother is Palestinian Muslim, her father Palestinian Christian. Growing up, she learned about food in the kitchens of her mother and two grandmothers. She moved to Philadelphia when she was 17 to study at the University of Pennsylvania, where she received her undergraduate degree and then an MBA from the Wharton School. She lived in London for five years, where she received a graduate degree in social psychology from the London School of Economics. She now lives outside of Philadelphia in Bryn Mawr with her husband and their two daughters. She describes her refrigerator as multicultural. Reem Cassis, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me, Terry. A lot of Americans are familiar with hummus, which is mm-hmm. a, a spread of chickpeas and tahini. Um, you describe hummus as the most recognizable and most controversial Middle <laughs> Eastern dish. What is controversial about hummus? So hummus itself is controversial abroad because just a few decades ago, nobody knew what it was. You know, when my husband would take it to school, people would make fun of him for eating this beige paste. Now, suddenly, since the late 80s, it's become much more popular and recognized abroad as Israeli. And I think that's where the controversy happens. This is a dish that is inherently Arab, and abroad it's being marketed as Israeli without any mention to those origins. And that's where the controversy arises that I'm referring to in the book. You say that's true of various Palestinian foods that the Palestinian origins or the Arab origins Mm -hmm. aren't recognized, at least not in America. So I'm wondering how that makes you feel, both as somebody who has become a historian of Arab food, but also as somebody, you know, who's Palestinian and probably have some personal reactions to that. So look, for me, I started noticing these things once I left Jerusalem. I think a big part of our identities are formed and shaped once you are out of the place from which your identity arises. You start to see yourself in relation to others. Back home, everyone's Palestinian, it doesn't matter. You come here and suddenly it's a defining factor. So when I'm here and I see something that I know is such an important part of my culinary identity being appropriated as Israeli, it feels almost like adding insult to injury and willfully saying that I don't exist, that I don't have a past, that I was never there or part of the history. So I've said this before, it's not about the chickpea itself, it's not about the dish, it's more about what that omission signifies to people like me who are Palestinian who see our history being sidestepped completely and ignored abroad. 
So, Rim, you hadn't planned on becoming a cookbook author. You, you went to Wharton. You were in the business world for years. What changed your mind about what you wanted to do? I think it was a combination of factors coming together at the same time. Um, my first daughter had just been born, and I think like any new parent, especially one who's living outside their country, I panicked for a host of reasons. Uh, one of it was worrying that my daughter is not going to have the same upbringing that I did or the same connection to her roots, which had grounded me throughout my life. And so I started compiling my family's recipes and stories together almost as a way for her to have a piece of home wherever she ended up in the world. But once I did that and I started to see all those pieces coming together, I realized, you know, yes, these are my family's recipes. These are my family's stories. But taken together as a whole, they could be the story of any and every Palestinian family. And that was a narrative that you don't often hear, especially not in the West. You hear Palestinian and the first thing your mind goes to is war and occupation and that sort of thing. And I wanted to show a human face to my people. I wanted to show our rich history. And that was how the first book or the idea for it came about. And I always thought, okay, I'm going to publish this book and then I'm going to go back to my real life afterwards. But the book did surprisingly well. And on top of that, I started to see that the kitchen, this place that I had always said I will never end up in, was not a life sentence for women. Like I had previously assumed, if anything, it was a powerful place from which to be able to share important history and information and affect change in the world that I wanted to leave behind for my kids. Growing up as a Palestinian Israeli, what rights did you have and are there rights that you didn't have that Jewish Israelis did? So on paper, the rights are equal. You're an Israeli citizen. The only difference is you don't serve in the military. In reality, it wasn't the case. Uh, for example, I mean, on a day-to-day -day living, you live in Arab neighborhoods, you pay the same taxes, etc. You don't get the same services. In terms of travel, that's where, for me personally, that was the biggest nightmare. Going through airports was you would always get pulled aside. You would always get interrogated, strip search. I still remember, you know, my first trip when I was working for McKinsey, I was traveling with my colleagues and I'm the only Palestinian Israeli in the office in Tel Aviv. And they all pass through security and I get pulled aside and I get, you know, interrogated and I have to take my clothes off and they have to go through my bags. And eventually they wrote a letter and I was not supposed to go through that again because I was traveling with the company, but you start to see how it's racial profiling. It's not about the threat that I pose. And that was where you see, in spite of having citizenship, you are a second-class citizen in the country. When you were growing up in East Jerusalem, were there periods that were um, especially difficult? For instance, it's like the second intifada. I think you were mm -hmm. 13 right. uh, during the second intifada. What was that like for you? It was sad because the news is on 24-7. School was canceled for weeks at a time. And you sit at home and you just watch TV with people basically getting shot and killed. And during that time, other than feeling sadness for what was going on, I, it didn't maybe affect me much. Kids are resilient and they just 
They don't think as deeply about things. In hindsight, when I think of it, it's a very traumatic experience for someone at that age to go through, to see that and assume that that is just day-to-day life. You know, I see what just being home during COVID has done to kids nowadays, and I think that experience is not a pleasant one for a teenager to go through. But it also is part of the reason why I think you mature and you grow up quicker. So during the period when schools were closed, could you go out of the house at all? You could, but you would end up going to visit family or friends. In periods of very high tension, you would not leave. Did food play an important part during that period when you couldn't, there was so much you couldn't do? I think so. I mean, when you're sitting at home and you're not going anywhere and there isn't much to do, you eat. And you also end up spending time with other people. Your neighbors, your friends are coming over and food is a way to spend the time and pass the time. I remember we would have relatives and friends who would come over and you would make cakes together or pastries. If it was a summer, you might sit outside and eat watermelon seeds and It was just, that's why it's so hard to juxtapose the positive angles of it. You know, I have memories of, and very fond memories of the time that was spent with close friends and family and relatives. And I think of that and it was a happy time. And on the same hand, it was during those times that there was so much uh, brutality going on as well. And I think it's an interesting juxtaposition to see that you can have the good and the bad happening at the same time. Living in East Jerusalem, which is the Palestinian side of Jerusalem, were you able to cross over to the other side, the Jewish side of Jerusalem? Yes, it's West and East Jerusalem. Again, it's, you know, a geographic distinction, but it's very intertwined. So when I look outside my bedroom window, I actually see a Jewish settlement across the street. And then, you know, if you go to the left, you drive for 15, 20 minutes in Arab neighborhoods before you hit a Jewish one again. So you're definitely able to cross into it if you're in Jerusalem, and people often do. So talking about Israeli-Palestinian issues is a landmine, and I can confirm that it is because of the feedback we get whenever we touch on those issues. Um, Does it feel like a landmine for you living in the U.S. and being Palestinian and writing about Palestinian culture and writing about Palestinian food? A little bit. It does sometimes, and it's sometimes it's comical because all it takes is for me to use the word Palestinian and anything that I want to talk about, no matter how far removed from politics, suddenly is political. But at the same time, it's, it's hard to separate the things, you know, as Palestinians, as a people that do live under occupation, who are fighting for justice, it's hard to separate that reality from anything else that we do. Um, but I try to go about it and, you know, every person goes about it in a different way. I am in the food and writing world and that's how I try to address or deal with that issue from that angle. And someone else in a different sphere might deal with it from a different angle. But yeah, it can be a landmine, but it shouldn't be. And food is something everybody can enjoy. Food is the lowest common denominator we all have. It's the one thing that regardless of where you come from, or what religion you are, or what your beliefs are, you have to eat. But do I believe that food can bring people together? (laughs) I think that's a stretch. You developed a friendship and a professional relationship with Michael Solomonov, who is Mm -hmm. the the founder and chef at Zahav, which Mm -hmm. is an Israeli restaurant in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so that's been a kind of cross-cultural food relationship and friendship. How did you end up developing a friendship? So the first time I ever ate at Zahav, I was an undergrad student. And I remember going to that restaurant. And again, I was young. My mind wasn't in politics or food or any such thing, but I was nostalgic and I missed home. And I ate at his restaurant a dish that very much reminded me of one that my mother makes, frike. And I remember part of me feeling satisfied that I had eaten this dish that tasted of home and another part had felt extremely frustrated. Why am I eating the best Palestinian dish I've had since coming to the U.S. in an Israeli restaurant? And then you fast forward 10 years and I'm writing this book on the one hand, yes, to safeguard our culture for my daughter and our culinary history, but in part also to show the world that this is our food that we've been eating for generations before Israel was even a state. And so when my book came out, I sent Mike a copy of the book with a handwritten letter, in part to say, you know, this is our food, this is what we've been cooking. And I told him about the Frike incident. And I think he was very touched by that. I didn't expect to hear from him when I sent the book, but he reached out and said, you know, I was very moved by your book and he wanted to meet for coffee. And we did, and I was surprised to realize how many things get lost in translation. You know, you see Mike and you think he's the face of Israeli cuisine. He must deny the or the Palestinian origins of the food he serves. He must be anti-Palestinian, so on and so forth. And once you get to know someone on an individual level, you start to realize how many misconceptions you probably hold of that person. And that's the beginning of that friendship. So you and Michael Salomonov of the Israeli restaurant Zahav held an event at his restaurant. It was a dinner with dishes from your first cookbook, The Palestinian Mm -hmm. Table. And then after that, you both faced some criticism. What was that about? So one thing I always say is important to keep in perspective is how much criticism did we face? You know, by and large, people were very supportive of that event. The criticism that we faced was this idea, you know, people were saying, for me at least, you're normalizing. And for those who are not familiar with the term, normalization refers to a Palestinian doing an event with an Israeli person whose mission is not purely to discuss the occupation and ending the injustice that's happening right now on the ground um, in Palestine. And I think part of that criticism was a result of misunderstanding the context of what was happening. You know, to me, I wrote this cookbook in in part to show that this is Palestinian cuisine and Palestinians have always said, we don't care if Israelis cook or eat our food, we just want them to recognize that it's ours. And here is Mike, who for all intents and purposes is the face of Israeli cuisine in the US saying, I want to shut down my restaurant for the first time in the 10 years that it has been open to recognize and celebrate Palestinian cuisine and to acknowledge the role it has in the food that I cook. And to me, I saw that as a win for what I was doing. And so that's why I say the criticisms were largely, you know, A, they were a minority. Most people were supportive. And I think the criticisms that I faced were largely a result of misunderstanding of the context of what was happening. And I should mention that uh, Michael Salomonov's restaurant, Sahav, 
um, I think it was in 2019, won the James Beard Award for Best Restaurant in America. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, uh, it's considered a very important restaurant. It's very well recognized in the U.S. Uh, I'm sure it's recognized abroad in, in Israel, too. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's I want people to recognize what our food is. And I've always said this, and I think my stand on the issue is very clear. I've written extensively on this. The issue is not about the food when it comes to Israelis and Palestinians. The issue is about the occupation and the injustice. And if that issue were to be resolved, then you would cease to see this contention when it comes to the food. You know, you don't see Lebanese and Syrians and Palestinians fighting over who invented hummus or who owns it. I mean, okay, we argue over who makes it better, but we're not fighting about ownership of it. With Israel, it's seen as, why are you willfully rewriting and denying the past? Basically, it's a willful omission of any Palestinian connection or contribution to this food because it is it forces a reckoning with a narrative that has long been sold abroad of a land without a people for a people without a land and acknowledging the Palestinian place in that history negates that narrative. And so for me, I think it is important when you see someone who is so recognized for Israeli cuisine saying, hey, I actually recognize that this is Palestinian food and a big portion, the majority of what I'm making, or at least used to make in Zahav when it first opened up, is inspired by Palestinian cooking. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you about food and about your life. Thank you so much. Thank you, Terry. It's been a pleasure for me, too. Reem Cassis is the author of the new book, The Arabesque Table, Contemporary Recipes from the Arab World. Her first book is called The Palestinian Table. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham, with engineering this week from Adam Staniszewski and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shurock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Kayla Lattimore. Our associate producer of digital media is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross. You've been listening to a special broadcast of Fresh Air with Terry Gross on WMNF, Tampa, St. Pete, Clearwater, your community conscious radio station. Stay tuned for NPR News, followed by another special broadcast, Background Briefing, right coming on up. But let's also go off and do a little bit more Brandy Carlisle. Thank you very much for your support and for listening. Gravity-defying display of torque. All of these lines across my face tell you the story of who I am. So many stories where I. 
got no one to tell them to. It's true. I was made for you. I climbed across the mountain top. listening to WMNF Tampa.